I'm going to take our take our Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter eight. Revelation chapter eight. We are looking at verses one through twelve. One through twelve. <laughs> Revelation chapter eight, verses one through twelve. And as we've been covering the book of Revelation, we have been seeing how we've been seeing how there's just a lot going on here. Right? We started off talking about the churches. Right, we talked about the seven churches whom this letter, written by the Apostle John, was written to these seven churches, which is representation of all of us, the representation of the church today. And so this book is a book for us. And as we move past these seven churches, we start getting to the main content of Revelation, which is apocalyptic in nature, right? It's talking about the future, but it's also talking about a future that's filled with violence and destruction, disasters, a future where God judges this world. And that's a truth that we cannot deny, that God indeed is a God who judges, a God of vengeance. And that's one thing that we will see here throughout Revelation, one thing, one thing that I want to emphasize that we will see, especially in our passage tonight. You see here how, uh, you click onto the PowerPoint? Just make sure it's on it. Okay, here we go. All right, we see here how God's vengeance is, is threaded throughout this book. And God's vengeance is not just so we can have joy and like, you know, destroying people, but God's vengeance is for his glory. And that's what I want to really want to emphasize in this message. That there is a certain aspect of glory seen in God's judgment against sin. Now, when we talk about judgment, when we talk about vengeance, we have to come to have an understanding of justice. And justice is a moral attribute that belongs to God, that originates from God, and must also be defined by God. Right? It's a moral attribute. It's something that says something is right and wrong. And if something is right, then we want to reward that person. But if something is wrong, we want to cast retribution against that. Right? We want to correct what's wrong. We want to punish what's wrong. It's a moral attribute that belongs to God. God is the one who avenges all things. But it also must be defined by God. Because how then do you define what is right and wrong? And what is defined by right and wrong is defined by God because God created everything, right? God created this whole world, created this universe. God created us in his image. And because we're created in his image, that's why we as human beings care about justice, right? That's why we have things like laws. That's why we created them. That's why we have punishment for crimes. That's why we have protests for injustice. We have mercy ministries because we care about justice. We are created in his image. And because God is just, we too care about justice. We understand that in this world, every action must bear its own consequence. Now, as we're talking about this, as we're talking about God's justice, and we want to see here God's wrath against this world, we have to understand and put that side by side with the heart of the gospel, right? Last time when I preached, Back in 2021, <laughs> last time when I preached in, in December, 
we we cover the second part of chapter seven of Revelation. And if you just you know take your eyes and look look back a page and look at chapter seven, we see here that John sees a great multitude of people from every tribe, every tongue, every language, every nation. And what what I will say, what we what we see here is that the heart of gospel is for all men to be saved, all people from every tribe, every nation, every ethnicity to be saved. We care about that. That's the heart of the gospel. But that does not mean we don't care about justice being played out. Meaning, for instance, if we were to die for Christ, if we were to die in the hands of this world, that some people martyred us for our faith. And those men did not come to repentance, did not come to faith afterwards. Wouldn't we want our deaths to be avenged? Right? Wouldn't we want to see justice played out against them? That's where we see how, hand, how both sides must matter. We see the necessity of grace and repentance, but we also see that crime or immoral must also be punished. And what we want to understand here is that God is the one who deals with these punishments. God is the one who is the judge. We don't carry these out. God is the avenger. Before I get to our passage, I want us to read Romans chapter 12, verse 19 20. For here Paul says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, this is what we should be doing instead of avenging ourselves. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will keep burning coals on his head. <coughs> Excuse me. What this is saying is that we are called here as church to exercise love and grace to all people, even our enemies. Love your enemies, right? But that doesn't mean they will be saved when you love your enemies. Yes, many will. But yes, many also won't. And while those who are saved, we rejoice at their salvation. But those who aren't. God will avenge for you. <coughs> Water. And that's what we see here in this passage. In Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 through 12, we will see how God will avenge his saints. He will vindicate them for their faithfulness. So let's go ahead and read this passage out for us. <clears throat> Here, Revelation chapter 8, verse 1, it says, When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, and there was silence in heaven for about half an hour, then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to him. And another angel came and stood at the altar with the golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. In the smoke of the incense, with the prayers of the saints, rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with the fire from the altar, and threw it on the earth. 
and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. <clears throat> Verse 6. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there fall hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from the heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on the third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the stars of Wormwood. A third of waters became Wormwood, and many died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. We see here in our passage the seventh seal being opened. And from the seventh seal, we get a picture of seven trumpets, seven angels carrying seven trumpets. Now, before we get deep into our passage, let me just kind of recap what's going on here in terms of structure of Revelation. Because there are different ways of view this. We, we understand Revelation. We've come across the number seven many times. Right? We've seen the churches. We've seen the seven seals. Now we're approaching the seven trumpets. And later on in Revelation, we will see the seven bowls of wrath. Now, there are different views about how these sevens play out. But the seven churches are the seven churches in the beginning. But how does the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, what, what, what do they all mean? Right. So there are different views around this. The first view is one that's chronological, meaning they just see it straight through. Right. The seven, the seven seals happen. Then next, the seven trumpets happen. Then after that, the seven bowls happen. And it just happens in sequential order. Right. There's, there's nothing that overlaps. It just happens in that way. Right. So they'll say here that when the seven, when the first trumpet was blown here, the end, it's that that marks the end of the seventh seal and beginning of the seventh trumpet. Another view is one of recap, recapitulation. Meaning the seven seals, trumpets, and bowls are actually describing similar events or the same events. They're overlapping one another. Right. And so the seven seals describe a series of what's happening during tribulation. The trumpets describe pretty much the same thing, but in different ways. And then the bowls intensify that, but also describing pretty much similar events. And they will argue that the sevens, number six and seven, are all describing the same event that's going on. Right, so that's that's where some other people hold. They, they see that as happening, as overlapping descriptions, describing the same events over the course of the seven years of tribulation. Then there's the telescopic view, which is the view I come to hold, which is that the seventh seal reveals to us the seventh seal reveals to us the seven trumpets. So the seventh seal, the seventh seal is the seven trumpets, and contained within the seven trumpets, the seventh trumpet is the seven bowls of wrath. Right. So in a way, it's not necessarily chronological, because the seventh seal is the seven trumpets, 
they're describing the same thing. But at the same time, they're also not necessarily not complete chronological. It's the same way they're still kind of describing the same thing. Perhaps there is some overlap in terms of how the, the first six trumpets describe some part of what's going on when it's talking about the seventh seal, right? For instance, when we saw here, when we read this passage, when the seventh seal opened at, the, at verse five, an uh, angel threw, threw a fire down and there was peals of thunders, rumblings, flashes of lightning, earthquake, this is seventh seal, but that's going to be describing what's going on with the seven trumpets, right? And so there are some bits of recapitulation going on. So it's some of a middle ground. This is kind of what I see. I think this is probably the, the easiest way to read this, the straightest way to read this. Doesn't really matter which view you hold, but this is kind of, I want to give you guys a broader understanding of what's going on here and how different ways you guys can read this passage, right? But let's get into, well, let's get into our passage here. I'm going to start first by talking about the trumpets. So we're going to talk first about verse six to 12. And what we're going to see here is that the trumpets, the trumpets reveal God's vengeance against this world that's unleashed through nature. These trumpets, the trumpet judgments seem to deal mainly with ecological disasters. Seems to mainly be dealing with that. I mean, we, we, we read that here, right? They're just dealing with hail, fire. We got trees being burned up. We have here sea and the, the living creatures dying because of that. <clears throat> and then we have springs of water, so drinking water becoming bitter and poisonous. We have even the sun and the moon being darkened. Right? It seems that here we're dealing mainly with ecological disasters, things dealing with nature. And it's a reminder to us. It's a reminder to us that all of nature is under God's control, right? God is in control of all things. He's sovereign. He created this world. He's in control of this world, even over everything, the natural world around us, the storms that's happening, the, you know, the tornadoes that hit the Midwest earlier in December, like all of that controlled by God. And as a reminder, that when we think of something like nature and we tend to enjoy nature, right? We, we like, we want to go on seeing hikes. We enjoy looking out at the sea. We like going to beaches. We appreciate green trees, the fresh air, hearing the birds chirp. It's a reminder here that all of this was created for our blessing, created for man's blessing. But now here, nature is being used for man's judgment. It shows you how far sin has corrupted all creation. What was created for man's blessing has now been used for man's judgment. Now these trumpets, these trumpets here are describing different things, and we can have so many different interpretations of what these trumpets are. There's many people who say this is mainly just describing natural disasters that we see even today on the news. So it's it may look normal. I mean, we call it an act of God, but you know, it's we can also kind of explain it through science and stuff like that. So some people will argue that this is just talking about purely natural disasters, nothing really supernatural about it. Others will say that others say that perhaps this is, you know, for instance, the the great mountain that was burning fire was drawn to the sea, or 
the, the great star that fell from heaven. Perhaps John looked into the future and he saw a nuclear missile. And he didn't know how to describe that. So he just called it a star that's falling down from heaven, right? And, and then a nuclear blast happened and it contaminated the waters and killed the people because of that. That's what some commentators argue. I looked online to your midweeks. I think there's only two of you on there. And some of you guys think this is Pokemon, you know, <laughs> causing all this. You can have different interpretations. I don't know, right? I don't know. What we get here, what we see here, is that nature is going against man. Nature is going against man and it's controlled by God. God's the one behind all of this. Now, what else do we see here? Well, we notice here that a third of everything is being repeated, right? A third of everything is being destroyed. What is, what is that saying? Well, we see here that the, the trumpets here, they describe a destruction that is, that's increasing, right? It's increasing from the seals. For instance, the seals back in Revelation chapter six, Revelation chapter six, verse eight, it talks about death and Hades coming. And it says that they were given the authority over a fourth of the earth. And with that fourth of the earth, they kill with sword, they cause famine, they bring pestilence, and they, drive, they use wild beasts to kill the earth, right? And so there's fourth being destroyed. Here, a third of the earth is being destroyed. But this is not the final judgment. The final judgment, always predicted, and we'll see that later in Revelation, is meant for utter destruction, the whole world being destroyed. And so what we see here is an increasing amount of destruction happening, seal by seal, trumpet by trumpet, and finally when we get to the bowls, final, ultimate destruction. What we, what we get here is that the trumpets here increase destruction, but the trumpets here are not final. They're not final. A third of the earth will be destroyed. But what this tells us, what this tells us is that God is still working during this time. God is not saying, let's bring the end. God, even during the tribulation period, God is still saving people. Let's remember that. During this whole time and during the tribulation period, God is still saving people. God is still saying, hey, do you see this? Do you see how all of this is happening? Recognize who I am. Repent. Believe in Christ. Believe in me. God here is sending all these as a warning that the end is coming. The end is coming. And so, and so we see here that this is just a partial destruction. Yes, if there's a lot, so let's, and I want to make Maybe, I don't want to make that very little. Third is a lot. But it is still not complete. Then we see here in these judgments, these four trumpets that we're, taking, we're looking at, these trumpets seem to echo the Exodus plagues. You guys don't know what happened in Exodus. In Exodus, God cast 10 plagues upon Egypt. And these plagues were used by God to demonstrate his power over the Egyptians 
and has power over their idols specifically. Right? The Egyptians worship many of these idols. They worship their crop, they worship their sun, the, the, the sun, the air, they, they worship of you know, they worship gods that look that took on the shape of certain um animals and things like that. And God used these things, use these things against them, demonstrating his power over the Egyptians and their idols. In a similar fashion, God is doing that here too. He's telling the earth, hey, you depend upon these things, you rely upon these things, you think that these are your gods, you think that you can be saved by human technology, by nature, by this planet. Recognize that I am in control behind everything. That your idols are nothing for me. Then we think about Exodus plagues. The plagues were twofold. One is to show the Egyptians who is God, but also show the Israel, God's people, who is God. The plagues and Exodus were used by God to show Israel that he has faithfulness to save his people from captivity. Right? Israel at that time was slaves to Egypt. And God says, look at these plagues, trust me, I will save you. And in a similar way, as the church, as a church during this tribulation period, and I believe the church is still here in this tribulation period, as the church and believers see all this happening, they are reminded that God is faithful to save them as well. More on this later. What we see here in these four trumpets is that God commands nature to reveal himself. God uses nature to reveal himself to the world. We, <coughs> we are reminded that in nature, we, we get this, we get reminded of who God is. Right? God reveals both his beauty and his wrath through nature. Right? Whoops. Uh, Romans, Romans chapter 1, verse 20, says this. For God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Right? We know this verse. We heard this verse many times. We grew up in the church. We know this verse. Right? Romans 1, 20. And it tells us that this earth reveals God's eternal power and divine nature. It reveals his invisible attributes. But keep in mind, it does not just reveal his beauty. It does not just reveal his creativity. Yes, that's there. But it also reveals his wrath and his judgment. It reveals all of who he is, his power to destroy. Right? Just think about that for a moment, right? Because we take so many of these things for granted, right? I, like I, I'm trying to plan a trip right now to go see some, some go on some hikes and, and things like that, right? And, and we appreciate these things, right? We, we love looking at the beauty of the trees and the grass around us. When we are before the vast ocean before us, we get the sense of smallness and we get a sense of, we see the magnificence of the sea, right? We consider just how wonderful it is to even just be able to drink water, right? Think about the beauty of water, right? If you guys remember from your, your science classes, they, H2O is this really unique compound that gives life. It's, it's different in any way. It, 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 does, it kills us, 
right? But God designed it in such a way where it gives life. It's so precious and unique. It's a blessing. We think about the stars around us, the sun and the moon, and we consider the mystery of it, right? The celestial bodies above us and how, how small we feel before them. And, and we just wonder what's out there. It's, it's awesome. And yet all these things here, God in one swift action through four trumpets destroys a third of it. God here shows us that we can take this world around us for granted. God's in control of all things, right? And so let us remember that everything to appreciate all that we have, to appreciate this world around us. And let us remember that everything around us is created and controlled by God and that we are not to worship it. We're not to say, hey, we love this gift more than the giver. But remember that there is a sovereign God behind nature itself, behind our daily food, behind everything that goes on in this world. There is a God who is powerful, and who cares about what we do in this world. As we see here, these four trumpets, they're, they're unleash, they unleash God's vengeance through nature. They don't happen. They don't happen without first seeing how God responds to our prayers. And that's my next point. That God's vengeance is unleashed through prayer, our prayers. And we see this in verses 1 through 5. In verses 1 through 5, we see how God opens, well, Christ specifically opens the seventh seal. And when he opens the seventh seal, it says here in verse one that silence happens for half an hour. Now, the context here doesn't tell us what silence is. Like we we don't know why there's silence. We just see that there's silence. It could be, it could be the eye of the storm. It could be that dreadful, eerie feeling that comes before destruction happens. Or it can just be silence. I don't know. Right, we, we get this, we get this, and <coughs> excuse me. And we see here that God, God here shows us a picture. Shows us a picture of shows us a picture of this altar. And this altar has incense coming from it. And it's offered up to God. And it says here that this incense is offered up with the prayers of all the saints. Now, God responds to this. And we have to remember, again, God's the one in control of everything, right? If God's control of nature, he does not need our prayers. God can do whatever he wants. Yet God chooses to work through our prayers. God invites us as believers to join him in revealing his glory, revealing his name to the world. And we get this pleasure of doing so. We see here that the angel came, stood before the altar, and he gave he, he given much incense to offer up with the prayer of the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And it says this smoke rose up before God. Meaning God here is, is pleased. He's pleased to, 
to have this offering. He's pleased to hear these prayers. God is pleased to hear and answer the prayers of the saints. Now, what are these prayers? What are these prayers? Well, we see and we see references of these prayers actually back, back in Revelation chapter six and verse nine. Revelation chapter six, verse nine. This is the opening of the fifth seal. It says this: When he, when Christ opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who have been slain for the word of God and for the witness they have borne. So we see here the altar again, right? The altar there, and we see there those who've been slain. And in verse 10, this is what they're praying. And these are what these martyrs are praying. They cry out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? We see here the prayer here. The prayer of the martyrs is one crying to God for vengeance, for repayment for their death. This is, this is something to think about here. You see, we, we think that when we, we think that as we live this life, right? And for me, many of us here, we, we think that once we reach heaven, all our prayers will be answered. We'll get everything we want. The picture here shows us that that's not true. That even in heaven, the martyrs are still crying out to God, how long? Meaning, yes, there's immense joy when we get to heaven. No doubt about that. Great reward. But the work is not yet done. We still pray to God. Even in heaven, pray to God, asking him how long. Pray to God saying, when will your final judgment come? Which marks the beginning of the eternal kingdom. You see, we pray for this. We pray for this because we desire God to be glorified. We pray for this. And yes, it may seem like a harmful prayer, seem like a hateful prayer. But we have to remember that our joy, our joy is deeply connected to God's glory. That God is glorified both in both in the people we save, but also in the judgment he casts. And God here answers these prayers. Right? He answers these prayers by throwing fire upon the earth. And then there's destruction. And so this is what. This is what's happening here. See, there's a certain glory that God receives when he avenges his people. And that glory is shared among the saints. The glory is shared among the saints. The more that God is glorified, the more joy we receive. And the more joy we receive, the more God is glorified. That's how this relationship works. You know, we, we love God to see him glorified. We are most satisfied in him. And when we are most satisfying what God is glorifying. And so, yes, as I mentioned last time, back in Revelation chapter 7, yes, we pray for all to be saved. That is the heart of the gospel. We pray for that. We want people to be saved, right? Our, our joy, our, 
right? Recognize what I'm saying here. Our joy here is not connected with vengeance. Our joy here is connected with God's glory, right? It's not for vengeance, but for God's glory. And yes, we rejoice in all this. We rejoice at seeing people come to faith, right? In Luke chapter 15, verse 7, Jesus says, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who have no need of repentance. Right? One sinner saved means more joy than anything else. But we also rejoice when God avenges sins cast against his people and against his holy name. When God says, you will no longer steal glory from me. Let me show you who has the last word. Now, why does all this matter? Why is this here in this passage? What does God try to reveal to us through this revelation? As I mentioned, the trumpets here, the trumpets here have echoes of Exodus. Now, I want us to take a look back at the story of Exodus. Turn with me to Exodus, Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1, we see here the story of how God is using his judgment, his plagues, to reveal himself both to his people and to the Egyptians. But there's a lot more happening here than just God doing these things. Exodus chapter 1, verse 7 says, first of all, that the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. What's going on here is providing context, right? Israel here is in a foreign land, but their leader, Joseph, died. What's going to happen to them? Well, God it says here that they continue to grow, and it grew increasingly strong, but, but what happened here is that they became captives, became a slave. But we see here that God is still sovereign. He is preparing his people in captivity. Right? God is still gathering people. God is still multiplying people in captivity. And then in captivity, these people cry out. And it says, look now look at me in chapter 2, verse 23 to 24. It says here, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned, and because of their slavery, because of their slavery, and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. So these prayers, these prayers coming up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenants with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. You see here, God heard the cries of his people. And he remembers his covenant with them. He remembers his relationship with them. So what does God do? God chooses a man to lead his people. We see that in, in the story of Moses, going on to Exodus chapter 3, verse 10. This is God's call to Moses. Chapter 3, verse 10, God here speaks. He says, come, come, Moses, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. See, God works through a leader, a representative of the nation. God sends Moses to do this. And through Moses, God 
sends plagues and delivers his people. He judges his enemy. He got saved his people. We all know that story. Right? I'm not going to go through the 10 plagues here, but we know this story, right? The prince of Egypt. What we see here that God delivers people, he sends plagues, he shows himself. But what's the purpose behind all that? Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 to 7. Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 to 7, God says this, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from other burdens of the Egyptians. God here, God here does all this to make his name known to his people. So that they will know that they are his people, and he will be their God. Now take this picture. Think about what's going on in Revelation. God right now is gathering people from all nations, his people from all nations, from different tribes and nations, from different tongues. He's gathering them so they can come to worship him. He is right now bringing more and more people into his kingdom until that number is filled. Once he does that, God then hears the Christ. He hears the prayers of the church. Of all those who were persecuted by this world, the church persecuted for their faith. God sends a leader. Not just any leader, but he sends his son, Jesus Christ, the head of the church. Christ leads his people. Christ is the one, again, the 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 lamb who is slain, Christ, our shepherd king, Christ, our representative, our great high priest, Christ, the lamb who opened up the seals to begin this judgment, to begin this final salvation. God leads us out from captivity into victory. Why does God do all this? So that we will know that he is our God. We are his people. We are his people. This is our God. He has a plan for you. And so no matter what you may be going through right now, no matter what trials you may face because of your faith, no matter what hard decisions you may have to make because of temptation, because of trials, know that you have a God who has a plan for you. And if you are under any kind of trial because of your faith, know that God is walking with you. He remembers. He hears your cries and he remembers his covenant with you. That he is your God. You are his child. And so, the big idea for this sermon is to hold fast to God through prayer. For he is pleased to protect you and avenge you for his glory. The, the, the major application from this message is this. It's not to be afraid of persecution. 
not to be afraid of this world going against you. And yes, this world is growing more and more hostile against the church. And yes, while we live in a world that constantly counsels those who do not agree with them, let us remember to live as light in this world. Let's proclaim our faith. And let's continue to pray for many to be saved. If you are here right now, and you guys are in colleges, and I know at your colleges, not necessarily the most Christian-friendly places, if you are persecuted for your faith, remember that God is with you. And that, yes, God will avenge you. God will show this world that their idols are vain, that whatever they lean upon for power, all that is weak before him, that all power belongs to God alone. This is the great God that we serve. This is the great God who has saved us. And as we even read these judgments, let us remember that this is what we're saved from through Christ and by his blood. Let's continue to then hold allegiance to Christ. Follow him and rejoice in him. Let's do that because God is our God. We are his people. Let's herald them this truth. Let's herald God's name for all to hear. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that reveals to us the truth of who you are. Not just, not just your love, your mercy, but also your wrath against sin, your protection of your people, and how you, Lord, you will avenge your people for your glory. Lord, we thank you, God, that you are indeed our Savior and our Avenger. And Lord, let us then continue to hold our hearts close to you to pursue Christ. And let us do so, Lord, knowing that we are here to glorify your name. Therefore, let us remember Romans 12, not to avenge ourselves ever, but to continue to love our enemies and look to you. Look to you as the one that leads us, that gives us joy, that gives us hope. But Lord, we also look to you for our vengeance. That Lord, you, Lord, are the avenger. Because to you, Lord, belong all the glory. To you, God, belong all the praise. To you belong all the power. We, we, are, we are only here by your grace. So thank you, God, for all things. Thank you, Lord, for Christ who saved us. Let us continue then to praise you and honor you with our lives. I pray all this in your name. Amen. Amen.